second Bible reading this evening comes from Titus. Can I just get the light right? And that's on page 1251 in the Pew Bibles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ, our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless. The husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will not sound that so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth to the pure all things are pure but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure in fact both their minds and consciences are corrupted they claim to know god but by their actions they deny him they are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Lyndall. Uh, why don't we take a moment out, uh, move around, welcome each other, and also grab an outline if you don't have one yet. So there are outlines on the way in. And there are also pens on the pews if you like writing notes, so that's for you. So just take a moment out, move around, welcome each other while we get ready. <coughs> Okay, well, let's uh, return to our seats. You can continue those conversations later. Let's turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God who did not remain hidden, but have spoken to us clearly and have recorded your word in these scriptures, which we read today. We pray, Lord, that as we receive these words, we receive them not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start today with a question. I want to ask you, have you come across churches that have gone wrong? 
churches that have gone bad. Come across churches of those? Or have you been to a church of that where the church has just gone bad, gone wrong, gone messy? It's weird, isn't it? It's not meant to happen, but it does happen. But the church is meant to be the place which sets the moral standard for society, isn't it? The church is meant to be the place uh, which loves what is right and good and just. The church is meant to be the place that reflects God's character to this world. The church is meant to be the place where those who are different and outcasts are loved and cared for. The church is meant to be the place where the people there are above reproach, have integrity, live upright lives. The church is meant to be the place where Christ is central, where Christ is proclaimed. But it's so sad, isn't it, that often we do hear news of churches that have gone wrong. News of churches that have gone bad. Rather than uphold what is true and right and good, there are lies and deception. Rather than being a church of righteousness and justice, there is corruption within the church. Rather than love, there is abuse. I wonder if you've come across these churches. Well, let me give you a few examples. Just this week, there was this article on The Age. The title reads, Victorian priests abused eight boys, court told. You read an article like that and you think, that can't be right. The church is meant to be a place where people are cared for, protected, not abused. When churches go wrong. How about this? Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this this in Singapore. Earlier this year, this mega church, City Harvest Church in Singapore, a church with about 30,000 leaders. Well, there's this article. It reads here, Commissioner of Charities acts to remove church harvest leaders. And this was because this church, the leadership in this church, were accused of embezzling about $40 million from the church. $40 million from the church. And do you know what they used that money for? Well, the senior minister, his wife, wanted to be a pop star. So they used that $40 million to fund her career, her pop star career. Her clip is on YouTube and it's, it's, it's crazy. It's bad. But anyway, they wasted that $40 million on that when churches go bad. Well, how about this? This is in 2007. Now, I'm sure you've heard of TV evangelists. Those, yes, some people up that early or stay up that late. TV evangelists. Well, there was this, um, in 2007, six of the la- these large six um, American TV evangelists, they were investigated for possible misuse of donations. And that's because a lot of these TV evangelists, these ministers, pastors, They live exorbitant lives. They live like kings and queens. And just to give you an example, I won't name this minister, but this senior minister of this church, uh, the church purchased for her a $2 million house. That's pretty good, isn't it? The church does that for her. Not only that, the church purchased for her children a $2 million house as well. And not only that, the church also purchased for her, actually, I told you the gender, I'm not meant to, half a million dollar holiday house. Pretty good, right? Not, 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 not all. She actually, oh, actually, this minister has a bodyguard. <laughs> has a bodyguard as well. You just wonder, why do churches need to do these type of things? But there's more. This church purchased for this minister a private jet, $10 million, so that she can fly around in her private jet. 
Just imagine that. And you wonder, you know, without making any judgments, you wonder, is this right? Is this what churches should be getting and using their money for? Well, the reason why those six were investigated was because um, those were uh, those ministers were not only ministers, they were also the president of the board of directors, and so they decided where the money went. So you can see the conflict of interest there. But when churches go wrong, we see them, we hear them, it shouldn't be. Now, Carol Brooks, she made us an assessment. She said this, it's quite, quite nice. She said, Christianity began as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When it went to Athens, it became a philosophy. When it went to Rome, it became an organization. When it went to Europe, it became a culture. When it came to America, it became a business, a highly profitable business. And I'm sure it's not, I'm sure, I'm pretty sure that it's not just America. There are flavors of this in Australia too. And so I I want to ask you today, what do you do when churches go wrong? What do you do when churches go bad? What can we do about that? What can you do to prevent churches from going down that way, for keeping churches on the right path, on the right path, the path that God has mandated? You know, what can we do for our church? So that's what I want you to think about tonight. What can we do for our church so that our church will avoid buying me a $10 million private jet? Don't do it. All right, don't do it. I know you want to, but don't. So what can we do to prevent churches going wrong? Well, you know what? We're starting a series tonight on the book of Titus, and it speaks to this issue. It addresses this issue. So in this letter, uh, keep your Bibles open. We'll be working through this letter. Paul writes to his trusted lieutenant. This was uh, Titus was one he brought to faith in Christ and one he treated as a son, his own son, beloved son. And he writes this letter to Titus to equip him so that he can have the resources to ensure that the churches he looked after will not go wrong, will not go off track. And so Paul here begins in verse 1 stating who he is. He says, he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, He says it quite clearly, he's calling himself a slave of God. And an apostle, an apostle just means the one who is sent So he was sent by Jesus on a mission. And what was the mission of Paul? Well, he tells us in the next bit. He tells us three things. So look at verse 1 again. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the first thing, for the faith of God's elect. So part of Paul's work was to build the faith of God's people. Second, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So part of Paul's work as an apostle was to lead people to a deeper knowledge of Christ, that they might might live godly lives. And thirdly, this is a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. Paul wants them to recognize that you people who belong to God, you actually are saved. You have eternity ahead of you. And then Paul was quite certain of this. He says in verses 2, have a look. He's certain of this because this was promised by God himself, God who does not lie. You see, in the ancient world, it was quite different, uh, the God of the Bible, the God of Paul, to the Greek gods, the Greek deities. You see, the Greek deities, they were known. They readily deceived the mortals. You know, they were full of mortals. But this God, the true God, does not lie. And so verses 2 and 3, God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time 
And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Saviour. So that was his mission. Now Paul then goes on to greet Titus, and he greets him very affectionately. We see this in verse 4. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. That's a common Christian greeting in the ancient world, and an affectionate greeting. Now after this, Paul gets down to business now. Paul and Titus, they've been working together on different missionary journeys. They've been serving together, and on one of these trips, Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. Now, you might know where Crete is. Crete is the largest of the Greek islands, so that's where it is there. So they went together on this journey, and Paul left Titus there. And he tells us why in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There were unfinished business in Crete. You see, the, the churches there, they were somewhat established, but yet there was trouble within the church. And we read of this in verse 10. So have a look at verse 10. Verse 10, Paul says, For there are many rebellious people, me talkers and deceivers, so within this church in Crete, these churches, there were these troublemakers causing trouble. And so what do you do to prevent churches from going from bad to worse? Well, Paul says here, you make sure your leaders, your elders are good. Make sure they're godly. And that's exactly what Paul tells Titus to do in this very first chapter. But you see, it's not just any person. You don't just appoint anyone to eldership, to leadership. Paul goes on in the rest of this passage to outline the requirements of those who are to be leaders or elders of the church. And he speaks here of two broad categories. He talks of the character of the elder and also the competency of the elders. Okay, so two broad categories. Now just as an aside, just so you know how our church is structured... This is a Presbyterian church, and it comes from, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. And so Presbyterian means it's a church governed by elders. It's all, uh, what, what that says, it's always a team-based ministry. It's never a one-man show. <coughs> but in the New Testament, there are two offices within the church. There's the office of elder, and there's also the office of deacon. What Paul focuses here in Titus is on the office of elder. Now, as you read the New Testament, you'll come across different terms that are referring to this same office. So you might come across the, uh, the word shepherd. So shepherd, that is where we get the word pastor from. So the shepherd is the elder. That's the same office. So the elder is to be the shepherd, the one who nurtures, cares, protects his flock. But you'll also come across another word, and that is the word bishop. Have you heard of that word, bishop? And so in our church, you don't have uh, a separate office of bishop because the bishop is in fact the same office as the elder. So the elder is the shepherd, is the pastor, is the minister, is the bishop and the bishop is just the overseer and that's the translation we see in our Bibles here at the NIV. And so that's just so you know this is how our church is governed. It's a Presbyterian meaning it's governed by a group of elders. Okay, so what must the character of an elder look like? 
Well, here Paul focuses on two key areas of the character of an elder. He firstly looks at the family life of the elder, and then secondly he looks at the personal life of the elder. Okay, so let's look at the, the, um, these two. It should make us see that to be an elder is actually very different to being a director or a CEO of a business or of a company. He said, when I go for an interview for a job in, in some uh, engineering firm, I'm there to show my skills, to show how qualified I am, my degrees, my PhDs, my work experience, the clients I've worked with. That's what I do in an interview. But to be an elder, you look at something totally different. So you might be a prominent, I might be a prominent person in my profession, but that does not automatically make me a good elder. doesn't automatically qualify me to be an elder. You see, what God looks at is different to what this society looks at. The characteristics of an elder, the requirements of an elder, are the character of godliness. And so we're going to look at the family life and the personal life. So family life, let's have a look. So we're up to verse 6. An elder must be blameless. Now this does not mean that being an elder means you have to be, be perfect. It's, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that an elder must be above reproach. That there is no obvious character flaw that everyone notices. And so if we think, you know, that guy there, he's a bit shoddy, a bit dodgy. Now, we all recognise that. Well, that person is disqualified for eldership. He's got a character flaw. The next thing, the husband of but one wife. It's actually more literally a one-wife man. One-wife man. Now, why is this important? Now, this verse is not saying that if you're single, you can't be an elder. It's not saying that because Paul himself, as far as we know, was single Jesus was single. It's not saying that. But what it's addressing here is the idea of polygamy. You see, in the ancient world, polygamy was not uncommon. In fact, having multiple wives, what's a sign of your status, of your power? And so if you were a chief of a village, it would have been common for you to have three or four wives because you had the money and yet you were able to afford that many wives. And so it was a sign of status. But, but Paul is saying in the church it's different. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work the way society works. And so such a person with multiple wives will be disqualified for the eldership, even if they were a chief in the secular world. They can't be an elder in the church. But more than that, this verse is actually talking about this faithfulness in marriage, a one-man, a one-wife man. And a previous church of mine there was a minister, after he left our church, we actually discovered that he had an affair with one of the members of the church. And it was actually quite devastating because what that eventually led to was two broken marriages, two divorces, and two broken families. And so for such a person, well, that person will be disqualified from ever leading a church, being an elder again. We move on, verse 6 still. A man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, not only must the elder have his marriage in check, that's why he must be a one-wife man, he must have his marriage in check, he must also have his children in check, and that's what this verse is about. We read here, they must believe. 
But it's perhaps more accurate to translate this word, they must be faithful, because the word is an adjective. So it's not saying here that all the children of elders must be Christians, because becoming a Christian is ultimately dependent on God. And as Don Carson, the theologian, he says, grace does not run in the genes. But what this verse is saying is that the children of elders are meant to be faithful. That is, they are to be trustworthy. They are to be obedient in character. They are to be dependable. And we're told here in this verse that that it's about their character, that they're not to be open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. You see, if children are still under the household of the father and they're unsubmissive, they're disobedient, they're uncontrolled, they're wild. So if my kids were to run down the aisle now and start pulling your hair, that would actually reflect on me. And they did that every week. (laughs) Pull it out until it's bleeding. That would reflect badly on me, wouldn't it? And so that would say something about how I'm managing my family. It says something poorly about how I'm managing my family. And so elders must manage their household well. Their marriage well, their children well, their household well. And elders have often agonised over this. You look at this verse and elders must think, should I still be an elder if my household is a mess? If my children are disobedient, are wild? Obviously children get naughty, That's, that's okay, but outrightly disobedient, unsubmissive. Elders have agonised over this. Now, there's a story of uh, uh, a great man by the name of Tom Carson. He's no longer in this world. He's the father of Don Carson. You may have heard of Don Carson. He's a great theologian, written many books. Now, Tom Carson, he was a Baptist minister, and he took this command seriously. He took this qualification seriously. There's this story about him when both his children were teenagers. So one was Don Carson, one was a daughter. They were teenagers. Don was okay. He was the well-behaved mummy's boy. Uh, but the sister, the daughter, in her teenage years, she got up to a lot of trouble. You wild, whatever teenage girls get up to, she was a bit wild. And Tom Carson, he took this verse seriously. And so he sat his daughter one day, and with tears in his eyes, he pleaded with her, if you continue in this way, I must step down from the ministry. And after that chat, she realised how, how her behaviour not only affects her, but her family and her father. And so Paul's here is setting quite clearly, the requirement for eldership is that your household must be in order. Marriage in order, children in order, household in order, and that must make sense. Because if you can't even manage your own little household, how can you manage the household of God? Okay, it makes sense. But not only must they manage their family life well, they must also manage their personal life well. That must also be in check. And so, again, he reminds them that elders must be blameless. So verse 7, have a look. Since an overseer, an overseer is the same way, if you look at the footnotes, the word bishop, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless. But the image here is, is like an an elder, uh, uh, an overseer, is like a steward of God's household, looking after God's household until the return of Christ. And now Paul goes on to give a list of things you don't want to see in an elder. 
Okay, so looking at verse 7. Firstly, not overbearing. The idea here is that they can't be arrogant. They can't be stubborn. And so the guy who is so proud growing up, he's thinking, look at me, look at all that I'm doing, my ministry, my successes. Well, that person is disqualified for eldership. Next, not quick-tempered. And so this is about being self-controlled, isn't it? So the guy you see punching out the other guy in the car park because he lost his car spot, well, that guy will be disqualified. It shows that he can't be self-controlled. Not given to drunkenness. That's also related to self-control, isn't it? The drunk shows lack of self-discipline. Not violent. That's quite obvious. Again, a lack of self-control if you're violent. Not pursuing dishonest gain. And so not the guy who, who abuses his power to rip off people, to make money, to see eldership as a way of making more money. In some churches, that, that's how some people see churches. It's a, a network of business deals. And that's why they go to church, to, to make these business deals. But such a person would be disqualified for eldership. But you see, that was the problem that was happening in Crete. Have a look at verse 11. You see, these troublemakers... They were, in fact, ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Now, it's surprising that the church would be the arena in which this would happen. But surprisingly, it happens, and it still happens. Now, I remember hearing of one way in which a minister tried to make money, which was so bizarre. Again, this was on TV, one of these TV evangelists. I was a student, so a lot younger. I probably should have been studying and not watching that. But anyway, this minister on TV, he had these little bags of oil. Um, and, and he said he's anointed that oil. So you ring up, call up, buy the bag of oil, and you'll be blessed. How about that? And you know what? People would believe that. This is the minister. People would believe that. But such a person who's greedy for money must be disqualified. For the eldership. Instead, elders are to be those who are content with all that God has given them. Okay, so after those lists of don'ts, this is not what you want to see in the elder. He now goes on to what you want to see in the elder. So verse 8, he must be hospitable. Elders are to be welcoming people, people who love people, people who are willing to open up their homes and invite people, newcomers over. Now, just on Friday, uh, this past Friday, our youth group, we split up into six different homes for meals. And I was actually quite pleased that two of them were elders. I was, um, and, and I was quite pleased because elders are meant to model hospitality. And so if a person is one who rather, rather lives his life isolated from other people, if a, if a man is perhaps a recluse or a hermit who can't actually stand people, well, that person can't be an elder. They have to be hospitable. If such a person um, uh, is striving for eldership, well, that, that person can't be. Next we read, one who loves what is good. You know, this is as opposed to the troublemakers in Crete. We read that they were rebellious people, me talkers and deceivers. And verse 16, detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Elders are to love what is good. And finally, elders are to be those who are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
as opposed to the liars, the evil brutes, and the gluttons in Crete. So what's the personal life of an elder like? Well, it's one of godliness, isn't it? One of godliness. And if you think about it, this must make sense. If a person cannot manage even their own personal life, how can they be expected to manage the life of the church? And just as if the elder can't manage his own little household, how can he be expected to manage the household of God? So that's about the character of the elder. That is what is important for eldership. It's looking at the character, not at the skills, the character, the godliness of the person. But then there is one exception. There is this one area which an elder should be and must be competent in. They must be able to teach. They must be able to teach and to refute error. So verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And John Calvin, he actually puts this quite nicely. He says this, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And that's why in our denomination, all elders, before they become elders, um, they actually have to sign off and say they agree that the Bible is the authority over life and doctrine, but they also must also adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith as a subordinate standard. But the thing is, elders must also be able to communicate the truth. No point just knowing the truth and unable to communicate it. Now, this does not mean that all elders must be preachers, but they must be teachers in one way or another. Elders should be teaching. Sunday school, youth group, growth groups, be involved in the teaching ministry. Now, a person who reads a lot, knows a lot, very intellectual, a scholar, but who's unable to communicate it, you know people like that, probably like your lecturers, <laughs> well, they will be, in a sense, disqualified, ruled out for the eldership. They might know the truth, but they can't communicate it. And the flip side is also true. A person who might be a great communicator, the one with the gift of the gap, but doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, that person should be ruled out as well. And so an elder must know the truth, and he must also be able to teach the truth, to instruct the truth, to refute error. And that's because the authority of the elder is tied with his teaching ministry. It's not like, it's not in a sense, the authority is not tied to the office of eldership, it's actually tied to his teaching ministry. As he's teaching, he's exercising authority over the church. Okay, so that's our passage. Now some implications of this. So what have we seen so far? How do you prevent churches, or our church, from doing what those examples I talked about at the beginning? Well, Paul says you appoint elders. What type of elders? Well, firstly, they must be godly in character, have their family life in check, have their personal life in check, but also those who know the truth and can teach the truth. But now, I suspect some of you might be asking, we're talking about eldership and church leadership, and not many of you here are elders. I'm actually just wondering how many of us just Chris tonight, two. Yeah, not many of us elders, and and I suspect some of you are thinking, I don't, 
I don't, I don't really care about this. I'm not thinking about being an elder. I'm not wanting to be an elder. So what does all this have to do with us? Well, you see what happens when you have bad leaders. Churches can go bad. Churches can have wrong emphasis, teach a wrong thing, um, misuse church funds, uh, ruin whole households like what happened in Crete. And so that's why we all, it's actually a job for all of us to ensure that we have good elders, not just in this generation, but in the next. And so, and so what this means is, as we appoint elders in the future, we need to be making sure that they are trained up and equipped, that we're looking at the right thing. So if a person might, might be a CEO... We might think that person should be an elder, but does not necessarily make, uh, mean that that's the case. If someone's great in the secular world, not necessarily in God's eyes. But I want to say this. What has all this got to do with us? Well, if you think about the list of qualifications for eldership, just look through the list again. You actually see that they're actually quite unexceptional. They're actually quite ordinary nothing really special about them. It's not like elders are qualitatively different, that they're such holy people, a different class of their own, like a class of priesthood. It's not like that. Rather, Don Carson puts it quite nicely. He says this. He he says, the set of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. The set of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. And that's because these qualifications are actually quite ordinary. Nothing extraordinary about them at all. Because these qualifications are not unique to elders. They're, in fact, mandated of all Christians. So if you think through that list again, you know, if an elder uh, are not meant to be drunks, does that mean the rest of us can go around drinking Friday nights, getting drunk? If elders are not meant to be greedy for money, does that mean the rest of the church can be greedy for money? Of course not. Or if elders are meant to manage their household well, does that mean the rest of us, we can be flippant about our household? Of course not. You see, what's mandated of of elders is also mandated of all Christians. We're expected to lead this, this godly life as expected of elders. But of course, what we find in churches is that these characteristics that are mandated of all Christians, the reality is that they're not commonplace, as basic as they are. They're not commonplace. And that's why elders are to exemplify them. So what's mandated of the whole church community must be exemplified in the elders. So that when we observe an elder, when we watch the life of an elder, we must be able to see This is what a Christian life must look like. This is how I'm meant to live. A life that reflects Christian virtues, Christian values, Christian righteousness, Christian integrity, and Christ-likeness. You see, what's distinctive about the elder is that they best exemplify what is mandated of us all. But of course, there's that exception of the ability to teach. We're all required to proclaim the news in one way or another, but we're not all mandated to be preachers, and that's okay. So what has all this got to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with the church. This is a church thing. It's not just reserved for those in leadership. Elders are to be our models, examples of Christian living, so that if elders live that way and the church lives that way, 
a life that holds firmly to the trustworthy message, where we together work living the life that God has set before us, then we can prevent our church from going wrong, prevent our church from going bad, but instead working towards glory. Now, just a final word. I know here tonight there are those of us who are not Christians, not believers, and I'm sure you would have heard churches that go wrong in the news or uh, today, tonight. But what you've heard today is what the church is meant to be like. Churches fail, people fail, and they will be held accountable. But this is what the church is meant to be like, a life that reflects God. Well, let's... Uh, Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words which teaches us how we are to live and how the church is to be led. And we pray, Lord, that in this church you will always be raising godly leaders, godly elders to lead this church, to protect it, to nurture it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.